Joshua chapter 14 is where we are. Now, we've been talking about uh, Philadelphians living in Laodicea. Now, I want you to I want you to hold your place in Joshua because we're going to we're going to come come there in just a moment. But we're also going to look at Revelation chapter three, Revelation chapter three. We've talked about being a Philadelphian believer in the age of Laodicea. What we mean is Revelation 2 and 3, those chapters contain letters to seven churches in Asia. And they represent, of course, they're written to seven actual churches at that time, but they also represent a chronological overview of the church age. Uh, starting there with Ephesus, coming all the way down until Laodicea. And so the idea is that you have, for different ages, different years of the church age, you have a different church. And it's chronological, from Ephesus to Laodicea. Laodicea being the last church before the rapture. If you look at Revelation chapter 4, you can see, uh, and after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. And that is the rapture of the church. So if we look at Laodicea, what we're talking about is the last church before Jesus comes. Now, many of you may know that. Some of you, this may be brand new to you, that concept. But we're talking about the last church before Jesus comes. And unfortunately, it's not a pretty picture. There is nothing good said to the church at Laodicea. In fact, it's not called the church at Laodicea. It's called the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. But let's read what he said to the church right before that church in verse 7. This is the Philadelphian church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast, here's the three things they have, thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Those are the three things. He goes on to talk about how he will reward them for that. Now look at verse number 14. You got the church in Philadelphia. Notice the church in. We are the church in Toledo. We are not of Toledo. We are in Toledo. But here we have the church of the Laodiceans. Laodicea means the rights of the people. This church is consumed with what they deserve. What they think they ought to get. And uh, Scripture has, as I said, the, the, the Lord has nothing good to say to them. Look at verse 14. Now, I'll stop making your head bob up and down. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witnesses, uh, witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's Jesus Christ. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Bible says that uh, there would come a time when the love of many would wax cold. There's your cold. And then the scripture talks over and over about hot and how hot is associated with anger. Uh, the, 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 what did he say? The anger of the Lord waxed hot. 
Moses' anger waxed hot. And so anger is associated that we might call it passion, uh, somebody that really wants to act on what they feel. And then the other side is the cold, and that is a person who is apathetic. The Lord is saying here that the Laodiceans are lukewarm, they're, they're room temperature, because they are neither hot nor cold. And did you notice the contrast? What was the open thing that God set before the Philadelphians? Open door. Look at verse 20. Here he's talking to the the Laodiceans. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. When do you knock at doors? When they're what? When they're closed. You've got a closed door in Laodicea with Jesus Christ on the outside, whereas you've got the Lord standing by the door in Philadelphia saying, I have set before thee an open door. So one is happy inside, secure, and walled off from God. The other is being sent by God through an open door. And so you can see what it means, to, as far as God's concerned, the distinction between the church at Philadelphia and the church of the Laodiceans. What God is looking for are people like Philadelphians. When I, when I see there, I don't see them as superhero Christians. He said they had how much strength? A little strength. And he said they have not denied my name. They're not embarrassed to be known as Christians. And they've kept my word. Now you've got to know where the word of God is in order to keep it. And once you know where it is, you've got to keep that word. You've got to guard it. You've got to use it. And so that's what it means to be a Philadelphian. We'll see that in a moment. We'll see a little bit more about that. Let's go back now to Joshua chapter 14. In Joshua chapter 14, we're going to see how God makes. Now, forgive me here. We're going to, we're going to blend the Old and the New Testament tonight a little bit. So stay with me. Uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to take the, the, the concept of Philadelphians in Laodicea and bring it back to the Old Testament. And we're going to use Caleb as a type of a Philadelphian believer in the the company of a lot of Laodicean believers. So a Philadelphian around Laodiceans, in the midst of them. Caleb in the midst of a bunch of people who don't have the faith to trust God. How much strength did Caleb have? He just had a little strength. He was going up against giants. There's no way he could defeat them. So now we can kind of, hopefully you can get the picture. Uh, it's, It's a man who has a different spirit, another spirit, right in the middle of a bunch of folks who don't care. And if if Caleb is a Philadelphian, that means the other ten spies, excluding Joshua, would be more like Laodiceans. And we'll see that here. In just a moment. Let's look at Joshua chapter 14. In Joshua 14, we're actually way past all of this disappointing episode. We're way yonder past that. And they are talking about, in retrospect, Caleb is looking back. He says this, 40 years old was I, in verse 7, Joshua 14, 7. 40 years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea. 
to espy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. So that's why I've called this the first 40, making it to the promised land. He had lived for 40 years, born a slave, miraculously delivered, the blood on the doorposts, uh, the, 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 the death angel passed over his family, and uh, he was baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. And he comes out, and he's in the wilderness. They wander around a little bit, not too long. But by the time they get to the doorstep, he's 40 years old. It took him 40 years to get to the point where he was appointed as a spy. And he was appointed as a spy as a badge of honor. He was a respectable man. But then the second 40, it's actually 45, we'll find in verse number 10. Joshua chapter 14, verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. The extra five are because of the wars. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings, it tells us there in Joshua chapter 14. So uh, the long time, maybe five years, maybe longer, but he's got 40 years of having lived until he got to the promised land. The guy said, no, we're not doing this. No, no, we're not. So he had to wander around for 40 years and then five years of fighting. Now he finally gets to receive the inheritance that was granted to him by Moses so many years ago. Moses is long gone by this point. But Caleb has an opportunity to see the fulfillment of a promise made to him by God. And I want to see how God makes Philadelphians out of Laodiceans. How he takes people from being lukewarm to being on fire for God. All right, let's see. Let's start with some very basic stuff. And first of all, it's personal character. Personal character. Here, Caleb is becoming a man. In the first 40, Caleb has to become a man. Now, if you're a woman, um, you need to stay a woman. All right? You don't need to become a man. All right? But, but you understand what I'm saying. A fully mature human being. He was going to become a man of God, have another spirit, having God himself say that you're, you are unique and distinct. I'd love to have God say that of me, that I had another spirit than the world around, around me. But how did he get that? I'll, I'll tell you how he got there. He became a spy because he was a man of character. He was a man of character before he was a man of God. He was trustworthy. He was dependable. He was capable. This was not... Um, some type of honorary appointment. He was not a stooge. He was not just a a, a paper tiger. He was a man who was fully capable, and we see how that worked out. But the point of this is is this. Sometimes we as people, especially we get around church, we get around God's people, and we want to be a man of God. We want to be seen as spiritual people. We want people to to look at us as perhaps on another plane. The problem is this. You cannot be a man of God until you are first a man. God is not going to take you from being a slob and put you in a place of great honor. It would be cutting his own throat. 
Uh, Brother, Brother Caleb and I talked about this with, uh, with uh, Pastor Charles Clark, uh, the older man, the father. And uh, he's got that great accent, you know, from New Jersey and New Jersey. And he talks about, he says, you know, you take, I can't do the accent very well, but he says, um, you know, you, if you take a, an unsaved man with no character and you get saved, what do you got? You got a saved man with no character. It's true. You take an unsaved man with character, and what do you got? A saved man with character. What do I mean by character? A person who can get out of bed when it's time to get out of bed. That would be something, an element of character. Uh, A person who is interested in paying their bills, and not only interested in it, they do it. A a person who, who can own responsibility. What they're asked to do, they can follow through and do. Listen, you know what? Sometimes the problem we have in our, in our spiritual lives, we have no character. We say, God, fill me. God, use me. And the Lord says, what time are we meeting together? When do you want to meet? And you say, well, Lord, you know my heart. And we, we put snot all over the altar. God, you know my heart. And, and Lord, I want to serve you. And when it comes time to read your Bible, you don't do it. You know why you don't do it? Because it's a bunch of things that you don't do. You know you're supposed to, but you don't do it. And what do we do? Well, we say, well, you know, I, I've got a hard life. There's some things I have to do. And I know pressures of life build up, don't they? Just, as soon as you think you've got one thing down, God, God allows a whole bunch more to come on your plate. But, but, but at the end of the day, we cannot be good Christians if we are not good people. We must not make a distinction between the physical reality of living in this world and the way we interact with people and this spiritual world where we don't have to be accountable for things. You you, you ought to take care of your family. You ought to be concerned with your spouse. You You ought to be concerned with your neighbors. You ought to have a good rapport with your neighbors. You ought to be able to interact with people that you don't like. If you can't do that, how are you going to ever witness to somebody? How are you ever going to be able to give them the gospel if you can't even talk to people? Hey, how are you ever going to be able to give to support the foreign missionaries that we do here if you can't, if you don't have any money? And how do you get money? You got to work for it. And it's hard, isn't it? You know what the hardest thing? We know it's harder than, than working hard. Trying to get out of work is harder in the long run. Because there's a lot of stress and pressure that goes into trying to avoid work. You know what I'll do? Get into a job and work and stay in there and, and show up on time. You would be considered a very distinct and unusual person if you just show up to work. You realize how easy it is to be, uh, to stand out today? You could just, uh, just try. Just try. Character is so important, and that's what Caleb had. Notice that that character that he had before the promised land, he brought that character with him. A man of God is a man who has character. Anyone in the world can stand behind a pulpit if they have a dynamic personality and they can amaze and wow the crowd. I've seen it done all my life. It's very easy to do. 
That does not mean that you can't stand behind a pulpit until you're perfect. That's also, uh, it's also pride. You can't. There's no perfect man. But at this, on the other hand, why would you be telling people this is what you ought to do if you're not willing to at least say, I need to do that and here's where I am going to do it? You want to be something, well then be something. And it goes right into our next point, which is be something in obscurity. The first time the name Caleb is mentioned in regards to this man, there's another Caleb, I believe, in Scripture. The first time is when he's chosen to be a spy. That means 40 years he's had a reputation, he's had uh, a schedule, he's had a routine that he has done and developed, he's had a job, he's had a network of family and friends, and no one has ever known who he was until now. As far as we're concerned, we have no introduction to this guy. Well, I just want to be, I want to stand out and I want to get to a place where people like me, forget it. Forget it. If you're not willing to do what you should do when no one's watching, why do you want people to see you? What is it that you think that they're going to say about you? Wouldn't it be true that they can only say lies? If if they see you doing something in public that you're not willing to do in private, wouldn't you just be trying to promote yourself as a liar? Hey, I, I want, everybody likes to be noticed. Hey, wouldn't it be nice to be employee of the month? I guess it depends on the company you work for, right? You've seen that, that wall of sadness, <laughs> all these people. These are the people that hate their lives and hate this company more, but we make them employees of the month. I'm sure there's some bad companies out there. But, you know, typically speaking, in general, there are good people out there that work hard and try. You know, you'd like to be the employee of the month. How about just be a good employee? You'd like to be promoted. How about just do your job first? You'd like to make more money. How about just earn the money that you're making right now? Remember years ago, I was working in Florida, and, uh, and, and I remember I was out of, the, out of the job. For some reason, I don't know what it was happening. My schedule was messed up, or I was, I was not there as often as the other guys uh, working with me thought that I should be. And they said to me, they said, uh, <laughs> at paycheck time, it was Friday, they said, you're going to walk up backwards to the boss this week? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, where were you? Where were you this week? See, there was a time years ago in America where people were embarrassed. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't actually do their job. Nowadays, you're made to feel honored and raised up and lifted up. Why? Because you have extenuating circumstances in your life that make it impossible for you to do what you promised that you would do. Um, Are we going the right direction tonight? It seemed awful quiet in here. Are we doing good? Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about you, obviously. I'm talking about them, people that are not here. That's the great thing about coming to church. It's never at you. It's always the people that are not here. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Here's what happened. He went from being developed in obscurity to being in the public eye. He was one of 12 men chosen for a very special mission. And his increased responsibility became, uh, came because of his dependability. One of the hardest things, one of the hardest things for believers, young men especially, is they believe if they don't toot their own horn, no one will. If they don't announce what they're capable of and what their gift is and what their talents are, no one will find them. 
The Bible says a man's gift maketh room for him. You know how, you, you know, if you're good at something, people talk. And they, they think of you when they need that particular gift. They think, oh, well, so-and-so knows that. You know what you ought to do? Stop worrying about people noticing you and just be really good at what you do and don't worry about what anybody says. Just dig in and find out. Hey, you want to surf internet? How about surf YouTube about how to do your job better? How to be a better employee? How to do whatever particular thing is? You know, there's guys out there right now, people out there that make money on YouTube or in books telling people how to do your job better. That's what they do. That's how they make money, extra money. And what do you do? Drag yourself to work every day and hate every minute of it and can't wait for the weekend. How, how can you ever expect to be a joyful leader of anyone if you can't even lead your own heart? Lead your spirit. You know what? Life stinks sometimes. But it doesn't just stink for you. It stinks for everybody in a hundred mile radius around you. And only the people that are on drugs don't care. The people that are drugged out, drunk, they don't care. Why, why do they think? Because life stinks. That's why they do it. Listen, you can actually enjoy. You want to get fired up? I'll tell you, I love uh, talking to Brother Ken. Brother Ken Lee. he talks about his job and how there they have a book all the time. Is it a book a month? Or is it a book? Something like that. They go through it. And they work through that book and they talk about it. Well, you know what? Well, who cares? Well, it doesn't matter. I can't, you can't even think about how many things he's learned and how, how many different things he has that he can help other people with because he's not just working his job and hating life. He's working his job and taking information in. He's using his hands and he's using his head. You know what a Christian can do? A Christian can use all of those things and then God can take that person and, and use those tools in supernatural ways. Imagine if you were a happy Christian on the job, how God could use you. But you also, you also have to be somewhat capable before people will have any respect for you. That's the first 40. To develop a reputation that people say, when, they, when your name is mentioned, that's a good woman. That's a good man. That's, that is that, I like that person. Well, you know what they call them? Sometimes you, get, you live long enough, you get called the salt of the earth. What does that mean? A dependable person of character who is solid, who can be counted on. That's verse 40. Notice, it goes from having the right habits, that's where it starts, and then over time, when you have the right habits consistently, you'll begin to develop the right spirit. And Caleb had another spirit. You ever work with somebody who's really good at their job, but they're really hard to talk to? And they're, they're like all prickles and stings and, and they don't want anybody around. And they're like, fine, I'll fix it. And they just fix it easily. They're really good, but their spirit's terrible. You know what God wants? He wants us to have good habits and have a great spirit. You don't have to be bubbly. Maybe, you don't, maybe you're not a smiley person, but you can have a joyful spirit. A spirit that's not bothered and bogged down by everything. So that's the first 40. I want to read something to you from a man who lost his eye in an IED blast in the military. Um, his name is Dan Crenshaw. Listen, uh, listen to this attitude. He said, maybe I'm just acting like an old grouch. I don't know. But this, this isn't just my experience. I talk to employers a lot, and I'm often told of management challenges with the younger generation. I'm generalizing here, but there is a growing sentiment 
that supervisors can't get them to show up on time and staying late to put the finishing touches on that presentation seems out of the question for them. They think they deserve more responsibility but aren't willing to start at the bottom in order to earn it. They move between jobs rapidly, thereby making investments in job training a real challenge. There is no sense of loyalty to an organization, no sense of duty to be part of that organization's success. It seems as if they believe the organization has a duty to them, but not the other way around. I accept that this is a perception about a group and that such judgments are often incomplete. The staffers who work for me, he's a senator, uh, certainly don't fall into this category of mediocrity, for instance. The good news is this. If you are young and ready to take on the world, engaging in the smallest sense of duty will set you apart. People will notice that you are humble and polite and believe in the team's success before your own. People will notice that you aren't looking for reasons to be offended, not looking for reasons to be outraged. You will be rewarded for it. In summary, let me end with some lessons in duty to be followed daily. These are, these are great One, you have a duty to accomplish something every day. You have a duty to live up to your best self, the person you want to be, the hero archetype that you admire. You have a duty to embrace shame and learn from it. You have a duty to be polite, thoughtful, and patient. You have a duty to overcome your hardships and not wallow in self-pity. That's true. You have a duty to contribute even if your contribution is small. You have a duty to be on time. You have a duty to do your job even if your job stinks. You have a duty to stay healthy, both for yourself and so that you do not become a burden on others. You have a duty to be part of the solution, not the problem. In other words, don't join the Twitter mob. You have a duty to try hard not to offend others and try harder not to be offended. This is a book called Fortitude. You say, I don't have that kind of... You know the kind of man that would write that? It's the kind of man who, after he gave his best years of his life to the military and got rewarded by becoming a man who is handicapped now, decided that the best course of action for him to take would be to serve his country in government service. You know, he could, have, he could have lived for the rest of his life enjoying being paid because of his injury. And I don't know that anyone would have, would have said he was a bad guy because of that. But you know what he did instead? He, got, you know, he was suicidal. He had some very, very dark times because of losing your eye. Can you imagine losing your eye? And uh, what did he do? He went on to greater service. You know where it starts? starts with the concept of duty. You ever try to put, 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 put duty into your feelings? You have a duty to feel things? You know what that does? Make you miserable. It makes you miserable. Why? Because feelings change. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You can't have a duty towards them. You know why? There's a, there's a mindset of a culture of duty to your feelings. If you feel this way, you must act on it. You know why? Because of money. You can make money on people when they are duty-bound to their feelings. Why? They'll do anything it takes, anything that they have to do to get to the place where they feel what they want to feel. So if you're feeling badly and you want to feel good, somebody can step in and say, well, just buy this. 
Just watch this. Just go here. Oh, that'll fix it? Okay. And if I'm duty-bound to my feelings, I'm duty-bound to feel good 24 hours a day, I will pay whatever is necessary. I will skip whatever work is necessary. I will be a slob if necessary because I owe my feelings first. And everything else can just settle in and just survive. Everybody else in my world can just deal because I owe myself this feeling. It was not always thus in America. It was not always thus. It ought not to be in the life of a believer. You do not owe your feelings anything. You owe your God. And I can tell you this, God can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And he's the one that can do something about them. So stop trying to be God. Stop trying to direct your feelings. Go to God and say, God, I feel this, I feel that, I feel this and that and everything else, and I got a whole list. But whatever you say, I will do. I'm telling you, he will take care of you. He likes it when you talk like that to him. Because what, is, what are you saying? He's not going to say, oh, no, you don't feel that. He's going to say, I remember when I felt that. But, you know, there's life beyond feelings. There's life beyond the pain and the sorrow. You know, I I actually died on the cross. And I actually went to hell. And I came out of the ground. And I'm alive forevermore. Hallelujah. That's our Savior. That's the kind of person that you can take your feelings to and trust Him with. He is trustworthy when it comes to that. When it comes to everything. Let's move on to the next point. Servant. Here's the leadership skills that he had to develop. He went from being a servant of man to being a servant of God. Now, this is the first 40, the servant of man part. Why? You've got to learn how to serve man. If you think you will skip the man, serving man, serving woman, whatever it is, and jump to serving God, you're lying. You're, you're lying to yourself. You can't. God is going to require of us to humble ourselves to someone around us and say, I want to help you. I want to serve you. Notice, it was learning to lead men and women before being led by God. Now, when I say being led by God, you can can be led by God in your first 40. I'm not saying you have to wait until you're 40 years old to start into the second phase. Do you follow what I'm saying here tonight? The first phase is just being a a decent human being and learning to to do what's right, even 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 if... No one ever noticed and you never were seen as a great Christian. Just doing what's right. The second phase, though, that part of being led by God, there's something interesting uh, about leadership. It's not just telling people what to do. And it's not just having people tell you what to do. It's carrying out a mission. What is the mission? What What are we trying to accomplish? So watch, he learns how to lead men and women in that first 40 because they said, oh, it's time to choose out a leader, Caleb. Caleb's our man. He knows how to lead this tribe, tribe of Judah, by the way. So he steps forward. But in the second half, you see, and that's, and that's what you'll see in the next little thing there, leading by consensus, that's a little easier. So let's say we're, we're going to go out to eat. What do you guys want to go? Where do you want to go? You want to go to Pizza Hut? You want to go to McDonald's, Taco Bell? You want to go, I mean, let's go a little higher up. You want to go to Arby's? Right? We'll take it up a notch. We'll go to Chipotle. Woo! Man, they name their chickens there before they kill them. I love that place. 
It is free range, organic, take care of them, give them shampoo. I think they shampoo them every day and then they kill them, chop them up and we eat them. Sorry, me and, me and Chipotle have this thing where I don't know what it is. Uh, get off your high horse about how you take care of everything. You're killing animals and feeding them to us. Okay. <laughs> I'm a little weird. I think you may have picked up on that. But, but this idea of, of uh, okay, where are we going to go to eat? Well, I don't know. Where do you want to go? Okay, well, everybody says this. So, uh, how about this, guys? How about this? How about we go here and then we go over there and then we go over there? Is that leadership? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, you're directing the group. But what you're really doing is you're, you're polling everyone and, and you're leading by consensus as long as everyone wants to do this. Well, the opposite of leader, the, leadership is not doing the opposite. I don't care what anybody says. I do what I do and you follow me. That's not leadership. Right? Why? Because ain't nobody going to follow you unless they have to, unless you make them and scream at them or guilt them or whatever. So, so he has to learn how to lead these folks and how to influence them, but, 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 what happens is when, when you finally get that down, you realize, okay, there's a mission and I'm going to accomplish the mission and people want to get behind that and we're going to move forward. But then there's another phase. In the second 40, Caleb has to lead through opposition because, because he walked up to the promised land. He was ready to go in and what did everybody say? Not interested. No, we can't do it. So now Caleb has to continue to stand and maintain his place in his tribe and in his nation as one of only two men that were willing to go in. You see, it's one thing to lead when you're going around and everybody's saying, okay, yeah, I don't, yeah, sure. And you kind of get the consensus going and everybody says, well, let's just do it. It's another thing to lead when people don't really agree with you. You think this is what we should do. And I, I'm convinced from the word of God, I'm convinced uh, from my from my, uh, my 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 background, I'm convinced from my experiences. I'm, I'm convinced from my conversations with people, uh, from my sixth sense, whatever you want to call it. This is the right thing, but nobody agrees with you. So what do you do? Well, typically people do one of two things: they either start yelling and screaming and trying to dominate people, or they just go into a cave and say, "Well, I guess nobody cares about me. Nobody wants to listen to me. It doesn't matter." How about this? Stay out in the middle of the crowd and say, this is what's right. It's not easy. Don't run to your bedroom. Don't run to your house. Don't run to your office or whatever it might be. Stand out there in the middle of, of, even if it's metaphorically, you're out in the middle of the thing and you're saying, this is what's right. You don't have to be a jerk. Some people think that leadership is arguing with everyone. Man, it's crazy. People, people go crazy in politics. They want to argue every little thing about, about politics. And it, you're not leading anyone. You're arguing with people who are not listening to you. You're not leading them. Don't you realize that if you're going face-to-face with somebody over and over and over again, whether that's either in real life or whether it's online, and you're, and they go, oh, well, we disagree to disagree. Okay, then go back to it again. Back to it again. You're not leading anyone. You know what you, could, you ought to do? You ought to sit down and write a book and think through your thoughts and have it edited and have editors tell you that you don't know how to write. Actually put some effort into it and put forward a statement that could be helpful. Or here's something to do before you do that. Read books instead of just opinion, opinion, 
Oh, I'm right. I'm stubborn because I'm, you know, I'm German. I'm Swahili, whatever it is. You know, that, I, that's just how we are. We just argue. We just, Stop. You're not leading. You're not even leading yourself. How do I know? You can't stop yourself. Anybody says something, you come right back at them. Calm down, chief. Take a breather. Hey, it's good that you're willing to express an opinion, but how's that working out for you? Are you the kind of person that says, well, I'm sorry, they don't understand me, so just we're not friends anymore. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. That's God Almighty talking to rebels. Sinners. And he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, which one in that equation do you think was right? Which one volunteered the invitation? The invitation, the one that was right. He was right and he had the ability to draw a person who was wrong over to him to the bargaining table. It's a lost art of negotiation. People think negotiation is compromise. Only if it's compromise in your own soul to begin with. If you know what you're not going to give up, if you know what's right and you're not going to give up, you ought to be able to go to the bargaining table and say, well, you know, let's think about this. Let's talk about this. We live in a polarized country. Why? Everybody thinks they're right, but they don't agree. You know the reason why people think they're right and they, don't, they can't get to it? Because there's no objective standard that they can both humble themselves to. This is the objective standard that ought to be in this church, not your feelings and your experience and what you have seen in your life. It should be the Bible, the Word of God. More specifically, the words of God. You ought to have a reason why you do what you do. You know what people do? People decide what they want to do, and then they listen. They listen, and they, they cast about. They cast about for, oh, the, the Scripture says this. Okay, here's how you know whether or not the Bible really says it. Are you willing for someone to argue against your point? If you're not, then you're stuck. You've actually placed yourself in position above the Bible. If you don't have two, three, four, five verses for what you believe about something, then you have a pet doctrine. And what you're, used, what you're doing is you're using the Bible as your little uh, wand that you can wave and say, well, the Bible says this. Well, God says this. God's telling me that. Be careful with that stuff. That's why it's so important for us to learn how to stand against opposition kindly, humbly, be able to say, yes, God, I want to follow you, and yes, I want to do what's right, but I also want to win other people to the words of God. Would you be just as excited about it, the Bible if it didn't prove you to be right? That's a tough one, isn't it? Because I like being right. I know that much. I got six older sisters. I learned how to stand on up for myself. And, and what happens is you get used to standing up for yourself and you think you're the standard. You think you're the, the one that's right. I'm not right. God's right. And his word is right. And if you haven't been corrected with the word of God in a while, you probably haven't been growing. Servant of men to servant of God. Leading through by consensus to leading through opposition. And then the leadership skills, notice here, this is just a, a fun one. I think this was actually, um, I think this was C.H. Spurgeon. Ready to carry the clusters and ready to fight the giants. 
He, he enjoyed having the rewards, but he was also willing to fight the battles. That was Caleb. Now let's turn the page and let's look at what was happening inside. What's happening inside. So th- there was a time of preparation that was going on in Caleb's life. God was preparing him for what would, what would come. I don't know how long, but I know it took him 40 years to get to the eve of the promised land. But now, all that God had been doing in him was going to be implemented, the time of implementation. Before, he believed that God is. Him that cometh to God must believe that he is. And then, you have to believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to believe that God cares about you personally. Some people think they're okay as long as they believe in God. Well, I'm glad that you do. I hope you're saved. But do you believe that God actually wants to work in your life personally? And if you don't, then you're still in the first 40. You're learning about God. But in that next phase, God is going to show you that he wants to work in your life. And and remember, that second 40, most of it was spent in the wilderness before they even got into the promised land. So he, he knows that God wants to reward him. God told him, I gave you this land, and now he has to go into the wilderness again. You see, what happens is we get up to the brink of it, and we say, we think, God's, here, here's what your family could be like. Here, here's what your attitude could be. Here's what your work ethic could be. Here's what your balance in your bank could look like. And we're like, ah, oh, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be a new person. And what you're actually inviting, when you realize that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, you are inviting warfare. You're inviting problems. Why do you think that the Lord uses the term diligently? Whenever I think of the word diligent, I think about my mom growing up. She would say, you need to be diligent in your work. She always tapped like that. You need to be diligent in your work. You know what diligence is associated in my mind with? It's associated with drudgery. It's associated with pain and suffering, right? That's what diligence is. It's hard work. You want to be a, a joyful, victorious Christian? Get ready to go to work. And I guarantee you, you're, you're going to love it. But you can't have it without being diligent. And so you go from this believing in God to believing that God will reward you. He goes from walking by sight to walking by faith. When they walked in there, we saw that in Numbers last week, the spies were confronted with their own deep-seated fears. These gigantic men. The Bible says, mine eye affecteth mine heart. So they were affected by what they saw. Caleb, on the other hand, had been learning to walk by faith. He was ready to be affected by what God saw, not by what he saw. So it's easy to get affected by what we see, but what does God see? That's what a strong believer does. He says, God, this is what you said. This is how you see it. So I want to be affected by that. Well, how can I? Well, you can't in your flesh, but since you have the Spirit of God, you can. You yield to the Spirit of God, and he will show you how to walk by faith. Notice that these, the, these, these folks here, the spies, walking by, by sight, they're like the Laodiceans because they're going to avoid extremes. Laodiceans avoid hot and they avoid cold. Why? Those are extreme. 
They would rather just be lukewarm. They're not hot. They're not angry. They're, they're not cold and apathetic. They like to live lukewarm lives. Lives that are not extreme. A life of faith is going to be a life that pushes you beyond your comfortable boundaries. It's a life of extremes. It does not mean you have to run down the street screaming wide-eyed at people saying, Take this tract! That's not, that's not a life of faith. That's a life of foolishness. A life of faith says, I am going to give out the gospel no matter how much my flesh hates it. I'm going to do it. It's going to push me to the extreme. I'm going to do what I know I should do even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to read my Bible even though I don't have time or even though I never get anything or even though there's so many distractions. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to do these things that push me to extremes. You know what the Laodicean wants to do? He wants to do nothing that's difficult. Not hot, not cold. I'm just here. And by the way, they're not upset and mad about anything. And, and they're not apathetic. They care a little bit. Right? Lukewarm is a little bit warm. It's also a little bit cold. I mean, they're not going to go out and wreck the train. They're, they're not going to do anything stupid. And that's the reason why they're walking by sight. Because what in the, in, underneath all of it, the Laodicean just likes things to be the way they want them to be. Just easy, nice. Why do we have to go off? The, I mean, I still love the Lord. I read my Bible. What do you want from me? Now, I'm not telling you that somebody that's got an even keel, a, a personality that is just go along to get along, and they're faithful. And, I'm not saying that is, to, that is to be thrown out. I'm saying there's got to be somewhere in your life that God's pushing you past your comfort zone. Somewhere. The Laodiceans, I don't want it. Caleb said, let's do it. They said, do you realize how dangerous... Do you think that God would want to put our family in a dangerous place like Canaan? Do you realize how, how foolish it would be physically for us to go to a place like that and put our lives in danger? How could I ever be the man and, and provide for my family? How, how could I ever... How could I ever just be there for my, for my husband, for my kids, and support them if I'm out witnessing all over the place? You see how, how, how we, we talk ourselves out of the things that God is pushing us to. Why? Because we just want to be average and calm and make good decisions. Maybe God wants you to be a little bit irrational. Just a little bit. You say, well, you say that, that, that God, is, God is a reasonable God. Really? He told Noah to build a boat and said, bring all the animals in. That was not very rational and reasonable. You say, well, it is for God. No, you understand there's a big difference between what is reasonable to me and what is reasonable to God. It's called faith. He is going to stretch me beyond what I think is normal. And what Laodiceans say, No. No, you're not going to stretch me past normal because I'm not going to do anything stupid. I'm going to take one foot and put it in front of the other and that's what I'm going to do till I die. I'm going to be just like every other American because the last thing I want is anybody thinking that I'm weird or different. I'm just going to coast. You're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. The opposite does not mean, as I said, 
going stark raving mad and being a lunatic. It's not what it is. It's recognizing that God did not call us to comfort. Isn't it what Laodiceans said? We are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. No, and they don't even know their condition. Poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked. Well, who does know? I'll tell you who knows. The guy who's standing outside the door. He knows what your actual condition is. So you don't have to open your, open your heart to the craziest Christian you know. You don't have to open your heart to me. Open your heart to Jesus. And say, Jesus, what do you want for my life? What do you want for my family? What, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to act and interact with people? T- teach us, Lord. Show us. we got all these great little well-behaved, uh, wonderful worldlings that are not living for the next world. They're living for this world. God's got more for us. Amen? Notice he goes from the natural man, he goes to the spiritual man. Paul talks about how he had no confidence in the flesh. Even though he could, he had a great reputation, came from the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. But he said, what things were gain to me, my resume, my heritage, my education, the things that benefit me, those I counted loss for Christ. By the way, if you're not an education person, it's your own self-made man education that you're proud of. Maybe it wasn't a diploma. Maybe it was you. You've hacked the world. You've figured it out. Man's figured out how to be proud regardless. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He said, I spent these for him instead of hoarding them for me. There's a natural man, the natural carnal man, and there's a spiritual man. I want you to look, if you would, uh, let's look at one place here tonight. Acts chapter 6. We've got to close. Acts chapter 6. And I want you to see this example of how, how someone moved from a man of character, from a, a, a servant, to a man of God. Acts chapter 6. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So notice the murmuring is there, just like it was in Caleb's day. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This, I would say, is in the first 40, so to speak, if you follow uh, the construct that I'm trying to put together. When they said there's a problem, we need somebody to help us here in the church. They said to the congregation, if this is the deacons, this is, what, this is how it happened. The congregation had a problem, and the leaders of the church said, okay, people in the church, we've got a problem You guys find seven men, and then we'll appoint them over this business. Now, I don't know how how many men were up for appointment or up for nomination. I don't know. And I'm sure there were more than seven. There were thousands of of, of people in the church of Jerusalem at this time. 
But somehow or other, they had to whittle this thing down to seven men who could be considered for this very important business. So let me ask you this question. You've got the second 40. That's the spiritual, and that's where these guys are about to head. I would say to greater spiritual influence and leadership in the church. How did they get to that second phase? They got there by being men who are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Now, what does it mean to be full of the Holy Ghost? It means to be filled with, the, with Bible verses that you yield to. Being full of the Holy Ghost is being filled with the Word of God that you are yielding to. It's not just knowing Scripture. It's actually yielding to the Bible. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He said, uh, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And he says in Colossians 3.16, in Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Colossians 3.16, he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He shows us what being filled with the Spirit means. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not some, you're not seeking some energy somehow like the force that causes you to be able to knock people for a loop. It is being filled with, your mind being filled with the Bible that you have yielded to. You are ready to follow the Word of God and you know the Word of God and it's meditating on, you've been meditating on and it's affecting you. That's being filled with the Spirit. And there's power in the Word of God. But there's more power in the Word of God when a believer is yielded to the Word of God. You could leave this Bible here on the pulpit all day long, all week long, and it affects no one's life. It's not just the physical book that affects. It is what the physical book says and how that, those words affect my heart. I'm thankful for the physical Bible. Don't get me wrong. But you can have a Bible in your home and not allow it to affect you. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the Word of God to which you have humbled yourself. The more Bible you have humbled yourself to, the more areas of your heart and your mind that you have yielded to the Spirit of God, that is how much you are filled with the Spirit of God. And so they said, we need men who are full of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? They've got so much of the Holy Ghost in them, it's more like they are filled with, the whole, with what the Holy Ghost can control. Where in their lives does the Holy Ghost not have a right to speak? There's nothing in their lives that he doesn't speak into. There's nothing that they do that the Holy Ghost hasn't informed or rebuked or corrected. And that is what it means to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit works in different ways. He does different things. Different people are affected. But it's not, I'm not concerned about how I affect you when it comes to the filling of the Holy Ghost. I should be concerned about how the Holy Ghost is affecting me. And he will do the work through me. You know, when people say, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what they mean is, I want to have power over other people. That's what they mean. I want to see a bunch of people get saved. So what you really want is you want the Holy Spirit to have power over other people. Okay, here's the best way to see that accomplished. Let him have power over you. Let him fill your heart. Let him tell you what to do. Humble yourself and say, Lord, I want to do this. And then go out in the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of God, and talk to people. 
It's hypocritical for you to pray for God, the Holy Spirit. By the way, we're never told to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. He said, be filled with the Spirit. He didn't say pray to be filled with it. He said, do it. Well, I'm I'm trying, Lord, I'm trying. How do I read the Bible and submit to it? That's what it means. Get the book in you and yield to the book. It's that simple. You know what happened? We've been impacted by charismatics and Pentecostals and the Church of God. Where did they come from? They came from the Methodists. Where did they come from? Came from the Church of England. Where did they come from? Came from the Roman Catholic Church. This is where we're getting this stuff. Where's it coming from? It's not coming from the Bible. It's coming from traditional religion. And we get fired up about it. We say, hey, we got to have, we got to have. Listen, you got all things that pertain to life and godliness right here through the cover, in the covers of this book. The more you know it and the more you yield to it and do your best to say, God, do something. You say, well, I know that God can do things, and he can. But if there's a moving of the Holy Spirit, guess who's going to be in charge of that? The Holy Spirit. What should I do? I should say, God, I want to be used of you in any way that I can. If you want me to see a million people saved, I'm on board. If you want me to give out the gospel and never see anyone saved, I'm willing. I'll keep giving out the gospel and I'll keep trying. Because I'm yielding to not what I wish the Holy Spirit would do. I'm yielding to what he said he would do in the word, first in my life, and in the lives of those that I affect. The natural man and the carnal man, uh, spiritual man. Notice here that they find these men, and what happens? In verse number six, uh, five, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and uh, Nicholas, a proselyte of Angela, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. There's the transfer of authority from the leadership of the church to these men. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. You see, we're moving from what man can do to what God will do. The spies had earned their, pos- their position up to the point of the promised land. They had a reputation, they had leadership, they had prestige. They had strength through personality of who they were, but now God was bringing them beyond that, God was going to bring glory to himself in spite of their fears, in spite of their insufficiencies. He was going to bring glory to himself. And so now it's strength through God. You see, the second 40 grows out of the first 40. Some of us want to say, well, I want to be in the second 40, but I don't want to worry about the first. No, 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 no. You've got to start in the first And you work your way that way. Some people say, I just want to be a good man. I don't need to be a godly man. But no, no. Remember, it's not what you think you should do in your Christian life. It's what he says you should do. So you should be a good man and let God grow you into a godly man. A man who is not just a natural carnal man who pays his bills, but a spiritual man who can see things through the spirit, who can discern the times, who can who can reach people with the gospel. Caleb had one thing on his mind, and that was to wholly follow the Lord. And so what he did was he followed God just as a normal, average, work-a-day guy. And then as time went on, God enlarged his reputation. God used him, grew him, stretched him. And then God enabled him to continue through all that opposition 
and brought him out into a large place. And by the end of his life, Caleb is not only being blessed, but he's able to give stuff away to his kids. Here's a heritage that I won by faith, and I'm going to give it to my daughter and to my son-in-law. What a blessing that God can take what we do and bless not just us, but bless our family, our generations to come.